Hello, and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim Masso reporting from home, and he is Alex Dykes. Hey, everybody. Alex, the Nissan Aria, long awaited. Was it worth the wait? Good question. It has been quite a long wait. It was supposed to enter production around the time the pandemic started, somewhere around that time it was announced. We first saw it at some auto shows about a year ago, and it's coming across as perhaps a day late, a dollar short when you look at it on paper. But when you start to dig deeper, I think Nissan has done a really good job with the Aria, but they've been a, a bad at communicating why the Aria is the way that it is. It's probably the best way to describe it. So let's just take the base price, for instance, $43,500 approximately for the base model plus destination. Does that strike you as high? It depends on the equipment. Exactly. This is a Nissan Rogue-sized vehicle. Yes. And for the record, EV6 Nionic 5 are about $3,000 less expensive. So on the surface of things, this looks like a bad deal. And Equinox is going to be somewhere in the thirty dollars to $35,000 range when it comes out. But then you take a look at what Nissan put on the Aria, and all of a sudden, it looks really good. A heads-up display is standard. The two-screen infotainment system is standard. Navigation software is standard on all models. The leatherette upholstery, power driver seat, etc. There is a ton of standard feature content. But what's weirder about the lineup is that that feature content is not consistent across the line. So if you choose the bigger battery pack, you actually lose the leatherette upholstery, the power driver's seat, um, the heads-up display, et cetera, that you find on the base version of the Aria. So it is a tricky thing. Range is pretty decent. You'll get over 200 miles of range in the base model with front-wheel drive for that $43,000 price point. If I were shopping for one, I would be tempted to just get that base model at $43,000 because it's a really good deal. But then as you work your way up to the top end trims, the top end one's going to be just under $61,000, plus, of course, tax title license and all that good stuff. That is a much harder sell. Zero to 60 is going to be around five seconds. The range is going to be down around 265 miles for the all-wheel drive version. And remember, the Tesla Model Y is going to get a tax credit starting January. I think it's also important to mention that that basic model uh, with the smallest battery and the lowest price range, uh, you can get that with all-wheel drive. For people up in my neck of the woods in the Northeast, the small battery and the big battery are both available with all-wheel drive. So if you're going to be local and you don't want to pay a lot out of pocket for options or a bigger battery, you can still get a real crossover with crossover capability. And that's an excellent point because very few options offer that particular combination of the basic battery and the extended range. And it appears that Nissan's being relatively uh, aggressive with some of the tuning on the battery and the motor combinations when we're taking a look at all-wheel drive because the performance is going to be quite similar between the extended range all-wheel drive and the standard range all-wheel drive. And it's also important to remember that this is probably a crossover EV that is tailored towards, I don't know how to describe it, but maybe the person (laughs) whose frame of reference is Lexus more than BMW, or maybe is Lexus more than Tesla, because this is a soft riding, a relatively Mm -hmm. cost sitting, uh, not necessarily performance driven take on the EV. It's a much more, 
again, Lexus-like experience. Indeed. And, and when I was driving it, that's what I kept thinking was this reminds me of an electric RX. And I hope that the RZ is something like this in the future. It does ride, I think, a bit better than Ionic 5 and EV6, which do have a comfortable ride as well. But the cabin is really, really quiet. Nissan really focused on cabin quietness, definitely over handling ability. It handles well, but it doesn't carve corners like an EV6 can. The cargo area is a little on the small side. It is theoretically rogue sized on the outside, but because of the very aerodynamic profile, it has cargo capacity that is way below average for a compact crossover. It's down around 22 cubic feet or so, somewhere around there. So definitely a lot tighter in the back. In fact, a Kia Niro EV is going to give you the same amount of cargo capacity that we find in the Aria, and it's considerably smaller on the outside. Yeah, in terms of its profile and its cargo capacity, think more SUV coupe than SUV. Um, mm -hmm. Is there a front? What's the, what's the status on that? No front trunk at all, because that's where the motor lives. And of course, the heat pump is up there too. So it does have a heat pump. Another nice touch. The heat pump is standard as well on the Aria. So definitely different than some of the competition. But I will say that I recently drove the Kia Nero EV. And the Nero EV is going to be less expensive with similar range, also front wheel drive, slightly better performance because of its dimensions and its curb weight about the same kind of interior room, depending on the number you're looking at, it has a little bit less leg room than the Aria, but the cargo area is about the same size. And even if you option it all the way up into the same feature content as the Aria, it's going to be less expensive. Now, I think the, the Nero is going to have its own spotlight solo in just a moment. Um, focusing again on the Nissan, in terms of maxed out $61,000, all of the toppings, you're going to get 389 horsepower, you're going to get just over 400 pound-feet of torque. Uh, much has been made of the E-Force all-wheel drive system, though I think that's probably more of an attempt to sort of like align it with something like a Z or a GTR than reality. Um, but the autonomy that you get, the autonomy software and hardware is rather impressive and probably among the best based on what I've heard so far. Yep, that's probably the biggest thing to know about the upper end trims. And it's not just the very top end trim. The two top trims of Aria will get the new ProPilot 2.0 system. This is one of the very, very few full speed range, hands off the wheel steering systems. Now we have to be clear for viewers and listeners about what this is because I've had a lot of comments back on Facebook going, oh, I don't understand the point of these systems. I have that in my BMW and it makes me put my hands on the wheel. And I'm like, don't do that. That is not a hands off the wheel steering system. Here's the clue. If your car tells you to put your hands back on the wheel, your hands are supposed to be on the wheel the whole time. <laughs> don't take them off. That is bad. You are not using the system as designed. This is like Super Cruise, like Blue Cruise, like the Lexus Teammate system that's only available on the Lexus LS. And then there are a few German systems that are available and currently work in the US, but only at very low speeds for hands off the wheel. This one, 80 miles an hour on a highway in Texas, hands off the wheel, eyes on the road, it will do it all for you. And I have to admit being a little bit incredulous about this at the beginning because I thought, eh, this is not going to work as well as Blue Cruise. Blue Cruise has been a bit of a hot mess. But in reality, ProPilot 2.0 is almost Super Cruise level in terms of the smoothness of the operation on the road. It will not do automatic lane changes. It will suggest them, but it won't complete them. But more important than that, I think for most people, is that it feels very confident. It follows the lane lines. It didn't dive out of the way. I drove for about 65 miles with the system on, 
and it only canceled three times. And the three times it canceled were for construction zones. Uh, now, Nissan, I will say here, full disclosure, Nissan has some work to do on the notifications on the system. I confirmed this with them later, but in the video that's coming up, you'll notice that the, the display in the car says uh, that the system canceled for HD map maintenance is what the, the term they use. And apparently somehow inside Nissan, that's the term they use for any reason that the system says the data is unavailable. And the data we confirmed was unavailable specifically because of the construction zone. So the moment there's construction and it's noted by the state uh, transportation agencies, Nissan gets the data from their mapping agency and they automatically delete it for those sections of roads. That way the system will not turn on in the construction zone. So those were not really accidental cancellations. It was a deliberate, like, you can't use it here kind of thing. But the notification wasn't good. But aside from that, it stayed in the center of the lane lines. It did not drive like a crazy person. It did not split for the bushes like the Ford system sometimes can. Um, and the lane centering is very smooth, much smoother than Tesla's autopilot. Uh, again, bearing in mind that autopilot is a hands-on-the-wheel system. Uh, so it, it was actually pretty impressive. And more impressive, we're going to start seeing this on less expensive Nissans. So if you don't want to pay $50,000 for your next Aria, you theoretically should be able to get this on something like a Nissan Rogue soon. And just to be clear, this is a high highly refined level two system that will pay attention to the orientation of your eyes and your face. It'll mm -hmm. monitor your attention to the road. So you can't check out and read a book in the back seat. It's very much like Super right. Cruise in that regard. Exactly. And the sensor system is pretty similar to Super Cruise. It uses two two cameras that are mount, mounted on the steering wheel itself. So they're just with the steering wheel and they're monitoring your eye movements. They'll even work through sunglasses, etc. They're monitoring your eyes to make sure that you are actually looking at the road. And if you're not, it will cancel out. It does so a little bit differently than some of the others. It follows the model of the ProPilot 1 system. So it will initially start beeping at you. Then it will apply some mild brake pulses to try and wake you up if you're asleep. And then if you're completely unresponsive, it will turn on the, bl the blinkers and then stop in the lane which I think is interesting. I would love to see a system. Volkswagen has proposed these in Europe, and I believe the Arteon has it in Europe, where it will actually move over to the shoulder for you and stop on the shoulder. That seems better than in the lane, but obviously stopping is better than running into a tree. Without a doubt. How does it handle passing? It handles it manually, essentially. It tells you that the traffic ahead is slow, and it recommends moving over. And then you turn on the turn signal, it defaults to the regular lane assistance. So all the displays go from teal to green in the vehicle. And then you move over the, to the lane next to you, and then it will resume once you're in that lane. Okay. So now we've talked performance, uh, driving impressions, pricing, spec, and autonomy. But I think talking battery and charging is important too, because I was actually a little bit surprised by the internal charger capacity and the lack of a really hot DC fast charge. Yeah. Drive. Both of those are on the, the question mark side. Why, 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 why did we do this? The onboard level two charger, 7.2 kilowatts. This is a very pragmatic choice. Obviously it's less expensive and the average EV owner does not actually seem to install an EVSC at home capable of a 10 or 11 kilowatts because they are more expensive. So supposedly, and this is borne out by some other research that I've heard, supposedly the average person's EVSE at home is only capable of 6.6 .6 kilowatts. It's about 30 amps because they're using the dryer plug, et cetera. So if you're doing that, if you're using the dryer plug for your EV, 
then this will charge as fast as you can go on that outlet. And there won't be a difference between the Aria and a Lightning or whatever else you might take a look at. But if you are willing to install that next level of power outlet in your garage or on the side of your house, then you can charge basically all of the competition significantly faster. Um, the Kia, the Hyundai, the next generation GM vehicles, they're all going to go at around 10 or 11 kilowatts. And then if you get the Equinox EV, which is coming out next year, there's going to be an option for a 19.2 kilowatt EV charger on that one. So that's really going to be cooking along. Obviously, it's going to require more power than your house is doing for everything else. Uh, but theoretically, it could do it. And then the DC fast charge time it is a little disappointing. They're saying 20% to 80% in about 40 to 45 minutes or so. That is on the long side. Bear in mind that this is 20 to 80% and a Nevi 6 or an Ionic 5 will do 10 to 80% in 18 minutes. So it is decently slower. Uh, Nissan is very conservative with their batteries, it appears. So even though these batteries are active heated, active cooled, the heat pump can cool the batteries, etc., they're choosing really to have a slower speed. They claim it can be updated later. Uh, we'll see exactly what can and cannot be updated on this vehicle, but it's possible that we could see higher speeds once they dial things in. Now it's important to remember that the actual DC fast charge peak is gonna be around 130 kilowatts. And I guess in one piece of good news, they finally abandoned Chatamo. This is a conventional yep. CTS charger. So you'll be able to use the normal DC fast charge that you find at most Electrify America, EVgo. It's no longer the idiosyncratic thing that only exists in Japan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they uh, have not said whether or not Shadamo will continue to live on with the Leaf because they have been pretty specific that the Leaf is going to live on. This will not replace the Leaf. So they just refresh refreshed the Leaf again. Theoretically, we're going to get another generation of LEAF at some point, and that's going to fill out the bottom of their EV portfolio. And this is a higher dollar ticket EV. Whether or not the LEAF keeps Chatamo, I am curious on because that could make it cheaper in the U.S. if it's just the same part as they use in Japan. But obviously that will further this old standard that really should be abandoned. Yeah, so I think this is kind of the sunset of that particular standard. What's interesting to me here is that Nissan, like Toyota, is arriving late to the game, but the vehicle does appear to be worthwhile. So given that, is it going to be available broadly? Because Toyota, out of the mm. gates, said, look, we're focusing on the Southwest. We're focusing on California. It's going to be 13,000 vehicles. It's mm -hmm. going to be a very limited release. Nissan will not say any production plans for the Aria, but they did remind us that the Nissan Leaf was the best-selling EV in the world until recently. So they're claiming high production numbers for this as well. We do know that there are gonna be two additional EVs built on this platform that are gonna be built in the United States. One Nissan EV, one Infiniti EV, and they're going to quote unquote, have a profile more similar to a sedan. That was the, uh, the news that they broke at the Aria's launch event, that they're gonna be more sedan shaped. What exactly that means, we don't know. But if they are building this platform in the U.S., clearly they could move Aria production to the U.S. if they wanted to. It is going to be available in all 50 states, and Nissan was pretty upbeat in saying that they have the largest established EV dealer network in the U.S. at the moment. So if you're interested in holding out maybe a year or two, there may be a U.S. built version of this, which would be eligible for U.S. tax incentives. We don't know for sure. All we know that is that mm -hmm. right now being built in Japan, it has very limited eligibility for a discount. Yeah. 
time frame wise, it's probably more two to three years. It takes a long time to move a production facility this uh, this style. So the uh, the facility in in the United States that's going to be building the platform mates that's been planned for quite some time. Adding an additional vehicle to that factory in that line that would take probably more than than a two year time frame. The model for this is probably going to be the Volkswagen ID4. Even that seems very quick, all things considered. But that's probably the pattern they'll follow if they do, in fact, decide to move to state side. So now, talk about another vehicle that's probably aiming at a different price point, but still very economical and green in its tech. The Kia Nero. It's brand new for 2023. You just got back from a drive event, so take us through the three primary levels of it. Sure. So we have the hybrid, we have the plug-in hybrid, and we have the full EV. All three models have come back. The hybrid is a massaged version of the hybrid system we had before. It'll get you up to 53 miles per gallon. It'll go down to 49 miles per gallon if you want the wide tires, which is an interesting twist. So you can get all of the trim levels with the narrow tires, and then the top two trim levels with the wider tires. But you have the choice of Handling or fuel economy, basically, on even the top trim. You're not just forced to get the wider tires if, for some reason, you wanted skinny rubber. The plug-in hybrid has been changed over last year. It now produces a lot more power. It's 180 horsepower from the same 1.6-liter hybrid system with a more powerful motor and a bigger battery. It also has a cabin heater now. So before, if you wanted to heat the cabin, it had to turn on the gasoline engine. They just removed that part. They never put it in, basically, in order to keep costs low. And low costs are the important thing to keep in mind with the Nero. This is a pretty inexpensive vehicle. It's probably probably shouldn't talk pricing on this podcast because some of the pricing hasn't been announced yet here.、Uh, but it is going to be pretty inexpensive. It's going to be more than a Prius or Prius Prime. I can safely say that. But、uh, compared to something like a Rav4 Prime, it's a lot less expensive. We actually have range that is not far off the Rav4 Prime, 33 miles of electric range, and oddly enough, a bigger back seat than we find in the Rav4. So it's pretty roomy inside. The cargo area is smaller though; it's about 22, 23 cubic feet、uh, in the hybrid and in the electric vehicle. There are some platform intricacies going on here. So the plug-in hybrid vehicle has a smaller cargo area than hybrid or electric, and plug-in hybrid and hybrid have the most legroom. Because the electric has some different floor structural changes for the battery pack, so legroom in the back changes a little bit. But they're all three really solid options. The electric option, we don't have pricing details at all just yet, so I don't even know. But they have indicated that it's going to be less expensive than an EV6, so definitely starting under forty thousand dollars. That will have an available heat pump system. It's going to be front wheel drive only. And that EV6 versus Nero really is an interesting comparison because you're essentially Giving up the rear-wheel drive dynamics you find in the EV6 and the faster charging to get longer range and better performance, which is a weird twist. So the Nero EV is going to be faster than the base EV6, but it's going to be front-wheel drive, not rear-wheel drive.、Uh, the Nero actually has a better back seat than the EV6. The EV6 is about 10 inches longer, but because it's that really sleek, sexy profile with the really big tires, etc., and it was designed for the upcoming EV6 GT to function on that platform. The back seat's kind of tight, especially in the shoulder and head area. So we get more room in the shoulder area, head area, both vertically and horizontally in the Nero than the EV6. So I'll make some predictions here again. If you guys are listening to this, by the time you hear the podcast, you might have 
conclusive details, but it's looking like the entry level a neural hybrid is going to be somewhere around $27,000, 27 to 28,000. And then your entry level a plug-in hybrid is going to be somewhere around $34,000. I think that'd be like an EX. So that's the price point you're looking at for the the hybrid, which is basically the entry level 1.6 liter, 139 horsepower. And then you're looking at about 34,000 to own the plug-in hybrid, which is going to be about 180 horsepower, but about the same amount of torque. And I would have to say this, caution to everyone who's looking at this as a crossover, the deal breaker for the Northeast and the Midwest is going to be front wheel drive only. Yes, that is going to be a problem. Um, and it depends on exactly what you're after. So actually breaking news, I just have an email in my inbox here. The regular hybrid is going to be 26,490. It's going to get you that 53 miles per gallon. And the plug-in hybrid, drum roll, is 33740 And we're in the clear because Kia says for immediate release. Cool. So 33740 The top-end version is going to be just over $40,000. And that's going to give you 33 miles of range, 48 miles per gallon after the battery has been depleted. So pretty, pretty good numbers all in all. So now I've also heard a little bit about the EV. It's looking like at this point it's going to have roughly a 66 kilowatt hour battery, 201 mm -hmm. horsepower. Um, it's going to be a rather disappointing 85 kilowatt fast charge. But I yes. think the, the appeal here is going to be that they're going to try to be competitive on price with this. Yes, it's the very pragmatic alternative to the EV6. So lower sticker price, they really were hoping that that tax credit would continue. They were pretty honest about that, that they were absolutely taken uh, aback by the tax credit not happening. So if the tax credit had continued, it would be one of the least expensive EVs in America. It would be somewhere around 30 some odd thousand dollars starting 33 or so, something like that, uh, or even less because it's probably gonna come in uh, under 40,000. The level of standard feature content we find and the roominess on the inside is definitely an advantage. And again, there's that trade-off of, you know, do you want the faster DC fast charge speed that we find in the EV6, which is really, really fast, or do you want the more pragmatic interior for the same price? So you do have that option uh, inside the Kia envelope. This is designed for someone that maybe is not going to road trip frequently. You could if you wanted to with that slower DC fast charge speed, but also the battery is smaller. So you can do a, a 10 to 80% charge. I believe it's in around 40 some odd minutes. So it's not, not horrific, but it's not snappy snappy. It's going to take you about the same time to recoup as a Ford Mustang Mach-E. So now I think a good bridge from here to the Ionic 6 is probably to mention that a very competitive vehicle relative to the Nero EV, the Chevy Bolt, um, mm -hmm. with a newly introduced price cut for 2023, it just hit its record for quarterly sales in the third quarter. And that was 14,709. That's the most they've ever moved in a quarter. That includes the new EUV as well as the original Bolt. And even though the company has had a kind of a shortened sales year, because of the recall. Um, they expect mm -hmm. to sell 22,000 of these in the fourth quarter and then 70,000 in 2023. And I think if you're looking at something like the Nero mm -hmm. EV, you really should look at the Bolt because it's a screaming deal at the current price. Yeah, the Bolt is a screaming deal, but I would say the Nero is better in every single way. The trick is just that it's going to cost you more. So yeah. 
the Bolt and the Nero are not the same size class vehicle. The Bolt is considerably smaller, and including the EUV, so considerably less legroom. It's a lot narrower inside is also an important dimension. The cargo area is quite a bit smaller. Uh, and you'll really notice the difference when you take a look at the cargo room with the second row folded from the hatch to the, the backs of the front seats. The Nero is quite a bit bigger. In fact, the Nero actually has more space in that dimension. It's actually about 20% more space than you find in an EV6 because of the squareness and the width of it. So Nero is almost as wide as a RAV4 or CRV. It has the same legroom and same rear headroom figures as a RAV4 or CRV. Combined legroom is actually better than, than some of those options. So it is a different size vehicle, and the interior is definitely more premium as you'd expect in the price tag. So uh, much nicer screens, we get nicer dashboard components, better materials inside, etc. all of that. But the Bolt is really, really cheap, and it's gonna get the $7,500 tax credit starting in January, making it most likely one of the least expensive, if not the least expensive EV in America. Yeah, keep in mind, guys, that right now the Bolt for 2023 starts at $25,600. If you want to get the EUV, that's $27,200, and that's before incentives. Because unlike most vehicles that are EVs on the market today in the United States, this one meets every criterion under the new incentive scheme. So you're going to get a lot of money back. But similar to the uh, the Nero EV, uh, it's not built on its, its maker's uh, premium or flagship electrical architecture. The Nero EV is not the eGMP that you get with the mm -hmm. EV6 and the Ionic 5 and the Ionic 6. And the Bolt and the EUV are not Ultium. So you are yes. getting a much older architecture. DC fast charge is going to be 50 kilowatts. It's going to be pretty much a 220, 230 mile real world vehicle. Um, and it's fun, but ultimately, these are two different versions of a five-door subcompact hatchback. And it's the same design philosophy for both of them. They wanted to keep the cost low, so they're they're refreshing rather than replacing the drivetrain that the vehicles launched with, which is what we see in, in the Bolt as well. Uh, other key differences are going to be that you'll be able to get a heat pump in the EV, uh, and sorry, in the Nero EV if you want one. You can't do that in the Bolt. You can get Super Cruise in the Bolt EUV, but it's not the current generation Super Cruise system. It's actually the previous generation system. So it's not quite as smooth as what you'll find in a Cadillac Lyric, for instance. But it is a feature you won't find uh, in the Nero. The Nero has a lot more customization ability. The seats are more comfortable, all of that. But it's going to probably be fifteen to perhaps even $20,000 more expensive effectively once we get that tax credit back. Yeah, and that's important to remember because at the end of the day, if you're looking for something that just allows you to replace gasoline, the Bolt is the cheapest way short of buying a used plug-in hybrid, which I think is a great deal in this market. Go out and get yourself a second generation Chevy Bolt, something like that. I still think the Honda Insight was fantastic for that. If you just want to go out and buy yourself a used hybrid, there's nothing new on the market that can compete price-wise with that if you just want to replace gas. Yeah. If you want a full EV, uh, the Nero and the Bolt are probably going to be the cheapest ways to get into this. Other Leaf probably deserves to be in there too. Yep. Um, but they are going to be older tech. They're going to have a similar battery size right about the mid-60 kilowatt hour range. Uh, hard to say how much of that is usable in each one, but you're going to wind up with pretty much the same real-world driving range with a Bolt EUV or a Nero since the EUV will be similar in size to the Nero. Yeah, the uh, well, the width width is important because the width is much wider in Nero. So, but it is a little bit more aerodynamic, it appears, than the Bolt. So, uh, length length is not far off, but the Nero is definitely bigger. The corollary in the Hyundai Kia envelope would be the Kona 
for the Bolt and Bolt EUV. And some people get this confused because Kona and Nero use the same battery technology and same drivetrain, the same motor, but they're not actually built on the same platform, which is the key thing. So Kona is a subcompact vehicle and Nero is built on a compact vehicle platform, which is kind of a weird twist in the weird thing that is Hyundai and Kia. So that's how oftentimes they get confused with one another. Um, other thing worth noting on both of these vehicles is that uh, they're going to still use CCS. So even though the battery technology is older, the Leaf might be less expensive, but it's going to be stuck with Chatamo. And if you're the kind of person that wants to keep your car a little longer term, the Leaf might be a little bit less expensive, but it might be worth spending more for something that's going to use the more current DC fast charge standard. Yes, without a doubt. And I think from the kind of grim topic of what is the cheapest new EV, we move on to something that is objectively desirable. This may be the world's cheapest uh, Mercedes EQS, but we're talking about the Ionic 6. Newly mm. arrived, very mm. cool. It is EGMP platform. Um, it's a little bit of a breakthrough alternative, something like a Tesla Model 3. Yeah, I'm surprised they bothered to bring the sedan or well, they haven't brought it yet, but they will be bringing it to the US. I'm surprised they bothered to do the sedan format here because sedans aren't selling overly well in the US, but it is logical for someone that wants an EV with longer range. Obviously, the sleeker the profile, the longer range you'll get. The rear end reminds me a little bit of a Porsche, to be honest, rather than necessarily a Mercedes. I'm going to be intrigued to see how many of these things move versus the Ionic 5. It's a fascinating vehicle. It's almost like a lifestyle type vehicle. Mm -hmm. I think you would buy if you don't need a true sedan because there's going to be a cropped rear end with limited space in the back seat. And it's the kind of high style, like lifestyle statement that you buy. If maybe in a previous era of like the car world, you would have bought yourself some sort of personal luxury coupe, like a Lexus SC 400 or a Cadillac Eldorado or something. This is a very stylish vehicle, and it, it does a great job of interpreting the EV sedan paradigm. One could argue it's a better-looking Porsche sedan than any Porsche sedan that currently exists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am going to be intrigued to see if there is a Genesis version. Logically, there probably will be some Genesis variety of this at some point. What exactly it looks like, I don't know. But I'm forced to wonder if maybe the Ionic 5 or Ionic 6 rather should just have been a Genesis. Maybe there shouldn't have been a Hyundai version. And maybe we go in the luxury segment with it to compete more with the uh, um, the uh, Model 3. This is another case where at the moment it is not going to be built in the U.S. though. So it's also not going to get the federal tax credit. But the base Model 3 probably will next year. I should also mention that this is a situation in flux there's a fluidity to this tax credit thing as the u.s and korean governments are still discussing uh this as a trade issue so there are high level talks going on right now um, korea is a major u.s ally we have free trade agreements with korea uh, the government of korea was very unhappy about the conditions of the u.s tax rebate that was recently passed so this may change that we don't have that fluidity in ongoing talks with say European automakers or Japanese automakers right now, mm -hmm. but there are talks going on with the Korean government. So this could yep. change as it relates to Hyundai and Kia EVs. Yeah, it is a little tricky because the way this was formatted was North America's included. 
And, you know, the logic commonly cited for that was NAFTA because there's a free trade agreement between Canada, the U.S. and Mexico. However, the U.S. also has a free trade agreement with South Korea. So uh, their claim is, you know, hey, if there's a free trade agreement, this should actually be free trade and we should be in the party as well. I'm going to be interested to see if that comes through. That could maybe give Japan more of a reason to sign a free trade agreement with the U.S. Uh, because Japan has, has there been once proposed in the past and Japan's never really signed on. Um, that really would be an interesting twist if the Koreans got it back and the Japanese were still left out in the cold. And the likelihood of one with the European Union is very low. So it doesn't look like the the European allies there, even though they're very close allies, are ever going to get that kind of preferential free trade status. Yeah, but unlike the Koreans, the, the European automakers, the luxury automakers, and even Volkswagen are fairly well established with manufacturing in the United States, and they're all investing further in battery plants. So they're a little bit closer to being able to pick that fruit, whereas I think in Korea, uh, so mm -hmm. much production of Hyundai and Kia is still done domestically, that they have more of a long-term concern with the terms of this deal. Yeah, Hyundai and Kia, they've got a, an interesting mix of things. They, of course, make a large portion of their vehicles in North America, but they generally don't make their lower volume vehicles in North America. So Kia, for instance, makes the Telluride here. They make some of the sedans here. The Santa Fe was built in the United States. I don't remember exactly where its production has moved, et cetera. So their factory is definitely churning out lots and lots of vehicles that are popular in this market. But everything that's lower volume at the moment is all built in South Korea because those factories are the ones that are more flexible for worldwide production. So EV6, Ionic 5, et cetera, they're built there. The Kona EV, the Nero lineup is all built there. Dinger. And that is a problem for the credit schemes. So now a little bit more about the Ionic 6 in terms of the driving experience. Basically, if you can think of something like the 320 horsepower version of the Ionic 5, and I guess it would be the N-Line EV6, that's, that's the top level performance you're going to get from the Ionic 6. The ride is fairly sedate. It's designed to be comfortable. It's not designed to feel like a Model 3. It's not designed to mm -hmm. feel like... There, there's like a Tesla feel, and it's unfortunately proliferated into a lot of other brands' EVs. And probably the worst offender is something like the Ford Mustang Mach-E, but they all have a brittle ride. And the Ionic 6 is sort of the antithesis of that. It's quiet, it's soft, it is reasonably quick in its top spec, but it's not a road burner, and it's not mm -hmm. designed to say, it's not designed to clone a Tesla or become an EV BMW. Right. It's trying to be that mainstream, more softly sprung thing. Think of the way that a current generation Sonata would ride. Uh, there is some thought that this might actually end up replacing the Sonata in the U.S. That makes perfect sense. First of all, it's if you're going to make sedans in this era, make one or two really good ones. Don't have a multiplicity of them because it's a dying segment. Um, this is an interesting vehicle because I can see someone affirmatively buying this because they love the style, they love the character, the Stinger is going away, and this sort of carries the torch for the Stinger contingent, mm -hmm. but it could also be a Sonata replacement. So I see this vehicle actually having a, a real role as that lifestyle image, quasi-fun vehicle, something that's cool. You know, if, if you're not mm -hmm. going to have a Stinger, and you're only going to have one or two sedans, it may as well be something expressive. If you look at the success of, you know, the last 
Dodge vehicles, you look at the Charger and you look at the Challenger, they've succeeded and they've stayed on the market in spite of antiquated underpinnings, precisely because they are expressive of their owner's view of themselves yep. and what they want to project on the road. And I think having a vehicle with a really strong, enthusiast-oriented identity in terms of style and performance is probably the way to go if you're going to stay in the sedan segment, because otherwise you're just Ford and there's no point in continuing with any of them. You may as well just go full crossover. Yep. And theoretically, the Stinger's replacement's already there, of course. You know, Hyundai would say it's not going to be the Ionic 6. It's going to be the EV6. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, that's the weird thing. Um, I, I would say possibly, maybe, kind of, sort of. But the EV6 is just going to be a torrid road burner in its top spec. So I, I, I still think of like something below EV6 GT level performance is sort of like the Stinger replacement. This GT but, line, because GT line zero to 60 under five seconds, uh, 320 horsepower, you know, rear wheel power bias, 255 with tires. It's definitely definitely a, a, a solid, logical Stinger replacement in, in that way. You're getting the same output though in the Ionic 6. Like, I don't yep. know if I see this as like a replacement for the outgoing Stinger and Spirit or if maybe it's just more of the world's cheapest electric Mercedes-Benz CLS. Either way, yeah. Uh, I'm going to be intrigued to see what the next Ionic from the family is. Okay, so from relative success stories among recent product launches to the Toyota BZ4X wheel fix fallout <laughs> picture consequences. So for those of you who weren't aware, this year Toyota and Subaru launched respectively their BZ4X and their Solterra, same platform, um, both with a problem relating to wheels that remove themselves. And mm -hmm. they were only planning on selling 13,000 of these per year in the US initially. But it does not help when your first EV product face plants like this. Is this going to matter? I don't know if it matters. Search presence for Solterra is super high, and the demand is is massively outstripped, uh, you know, by the supply. So I, I don't think, or sorry, it's, uh, the other way around here. You know, they cannot build enough, so there's huge demand. I suspect that everybody will forget about it eventually. Toyota did a stop sale arrangement on it, so they've told everybody don't drive it. They've offered to buy vehicles back. They tried their hardest to try and keep customers happy. Solterra, the same thing. And the fix ends up being new wheels and new hubs and bolts, et cetera. The whole shebang that connects the wheel to the vehicle is all, and the wheel, that's all going to get replaced. So if you curbed your wheels already in your BZ4X, don't worry, you get a redo. And uh, they didn't really sell very many of them yet. They caught this early, so Toyota had only sold about 700 of them. Uh, I'm assuming Subaru even less. So we're talking a tiny fraction of the theoretical full year sales there for them. Lots of them have been backed up in port, so hopefully they'll all be able to actually move now once they have the new wheels and, and all that in there to fix. I am surprised that a company like Toyota managed to make this mistake. Uh, it's clearly a design error here. This must be something to do with the way the bolts and the wheels interact with one another. And, you know, T Toyota screws millions of wheels on cars every year. So I am a little surprised that this occurred. I would say realistically, Toyota's a bit behind the eight ball on introducing EVs, but they bought themselves time by making a huge number of profitable vehicles of other descriptions. So they don't need to hit it out of the park on the first attempt. I would also say realistically, like you said, so few of them were in consumer hands. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the Chevy Bolt recall from just a few months ago, 
the bolt has gone from stop sale orders and immolations to record sales. And this is for a vehicle that's been on the market since 2017. Yes. So under these market conditions, especially if gas is going to start inching up again, I think this is survivable for Toyota. I do think that they need to be flawless from here on out, if only because they're so far behind the eight ball in marketing product. It's going to be a lot of hybrids, a lot of PHEVs. They're I not. Know. I, I don't know if they're behind. That That's a tricky statement that I do have to agree with, with uh, you know, Akio Toyota on. Okay. EVs are only 3% of new car sales. They're a tiny, tiny percentage of, of vehicle sales in the U.S. That's like saying Mazda's behind the eight ball because they don't sell a diesel and Toyota's behind the eight ball because they don't have a diesel because diesel is about 3% market penetration in the U.S. You know, uh, we, we don't say that uh, Ford is behind the eight ball with their crossovers because they don't offer manual transmissions because manual transmissions are maybe about one and a half, two percent. What matters of sales. there is, is the trend of growth. I mean, all the trend of, those... of growth is interesting, but nationwide, it's still not enormous. And we're still talking about massive growth to get to anywhere near a plurality of sales. So, I mean, this segment has got to somehow sustain what is theoretic, what is widely expected actually to be an unsustainable uh, trajectory of growth for years and years before we get to a point where anybody could really be considered behind. And every auto manufacturer, except for Volvo and Mercedes and a number of other European companies, every other manufacturer has said, we are still designing engines, we are still designing engine families, we're still bidding gasoline vehicles and diesel vehicles, et cetera. EVs are not the only thing in our portfolio. So I have a hard time believing that Toyota is really going to be left behind in that, that sense. We also don't know what true market penetration for EVs is going to be like. And I suspect it's going to follow something along the trajectory of how many new car buyers in America are single family homeowners. I don't have that data, but I suspect that number is not going to be 100%. Obviously, it can't be. So when you look at that trajectory, it's tricky to penetrate EVs any further than that. There are relatively few EV purchasers that are condo owners or townhome owners or apartment renters or even just single-family home renters because of this particular problem for charging your vehicle at home. You see, I do believe in long-term trends, being, especially, you know, you talk about manuals, you talk about diesels, but again, th those aren't growth segments. Mm -hmm. You look at the 1990s, and as late as the 1990s, GM still thought it needed a standalone division to serve the so-called import buyer. And GM had 1.50% of the market by itself. Nash, Hudson, Chrysler, Ford, all their 10 brands had the other half the market. Literally, probably 10 other automakers that split the other 50%. And just recently, granted, some of it was down to parts in availability and supply chain issues, but Toyota passed GM for number one in sales in the U.S. market. And I agree with you. We're not going to see an EV takeover tomorrow, next year, or the year after that, but it is an explosively growing segment and one in which the government is now offering huge incentives, uh, in which automakers are probably going to want to harmonize their global product because it's going to be so difficult to sell a gas-powered car in the European Union soon. So in the, in the, the EU's the EU is going to beat us for sure because of legislative requirements. The trouble in the United States is EV incentives are down because fewer EVs qualify for the tax credit than they did before and fewer people will qualify for the tax credit even on evs that qualify starting in january so the effect of government incentives in the u.s is actually depressed versus prior to the legislation passing in reality 
Tesla will get the credit scheme back. General Motors will get the credit scheme back. Ford will get to continue. But the percentage of their customers that will qualify and vehicles that will qualify has actually been reduced. Now, here, where I think government incentives have actually increased, it's not necessarily cash in pocket because we know that there are now price caps on the vehicle and income caps on the customer. Mm -hmm. But if there's one lesson we learned from Tesla, especially after the incentives expired for Tesla cars, it's that a build out of a charging network is a more effective incentive than mm -hmm. cash on the hood. And now mm -hmm. the government is spending a lot more nationally on charging networks and charging infrastructure, which is something we didn't see under the previous mm -hmm. incentive regimes. That's, that's why I see a little bit more of a pull in addition to a push from some of these expenses. We just need to, we need to get a different segment of the automotive buying public interested in EVs. Right now, it is a very, very similar demographic that is buying everything from a Chevy Bolt to a Porsche Taycan and everything in between. They're wealthy, upper middle income, single family home dwelling people, generally dual income, generally multi-car households. So they're not buying a Chevy Bolt as their only car. They're buying it as a commuter car and they drive the whatever on the weekend. There is a, There has to be a natural end to that particular market. And frankly, we just don't know what that is because supply is not there. So we don't know what natural demand looks like in this segment until we start having EVs just hanging out on dealer lots. Now, prior to the chip shortage, we did have EVs hanging out on dealer lots. The Chevy Bolt did hang out on dealer lots. The Leaf was certainly hanging out on dealer lots. So how much of their growth in these segments is due to you not being able to find the other EV that you really wanted? And so instead you get that, we don't know because none of nothing is normal in the automotive world right now. Everything is bonkers. Um, but we are still seeing strong resistance from apartment dwellers, especially, uh, and city dwellers that say, you know, I can't charge this in my condo. I can't charge this in my apartment. So I'm just not interested at the moment. That's absolutely true. And I live in an apartment, actually, for those of you watching on the internet, that's where I am right now. Uh, I'm just lucky that I can charge at work. So mm -hmm. I've got a plug-in hybrid, I've got a Chevy Bolt, and I have done all of my charging at work for five years. So that's a unique situation. Yep. And until we have a reliable public charging infrastructure that's easy to access and plentiful in both rural and urban areas, especially for people who park on the street, I do see that as a major bottleneck for EVs. And that's totally a real thing. And I would almost argue that a, a robust public charging network is still not helpful for someone that wants an EV and lives in an apartment because are any of my employees, even here in Fairweather, California, are any of my employees going to really want to hike their butts two blocks from the office to go plug into the charger where there might be a robust public charging infrastructure somewhere in this 1980s office park? Or are they going to only be interested in this if they could charge at the office? I think actually private charging networks for employers is probably going to be more important. And then we come back to some of these questions of is charging tied with employment um, like health insurance is in America. But uh, but that aside, logically, that's also where we want people to do charging, because if you are going to be using renewable sources for your power generation, peak availability for excess renewables is in the early morning hours pretty much everywhere before the heat load for the day comes on. So prior to noon, that 8 a.m. to noon time window, that's really when you want cars to charge. In reality, we don't want EVs 
en masse to charge at night. This is not a good time to charge your vehicle when you truly think about this. Yes, power is cheaper right now, but if you cared about green, then you don't want your EV to charge when the non-renewable sources are operating and that's what's going on at night. Or why bother the with the inefficiencies of jamming the power from renewable sources into a ginormous battery pack located hundreds of miles away and then you have to pull it back out of the battery pack and you've wasted all this energy. It actually is better to just charge it while the sun is shining. But that would mean charging at work. Yeah, and I think this is going to hit first with fleet operators because if you look at what Chevy and Ford and inevitably Ram and the rest are going to do, uh, they're targeting fleet operators to build out the numbers and amortize their investment in tooling and technologies. So it's going to hit them first because if you've got mm -hmm. 20, 30, 40, 50 trucks, uh, the question of when to charge and how to charge becomes much more immediate, especially since by definition, these vehicles will be charging at quote work or whatever yes. the motor pool is where they mm -hmm. exist night when they're not in operation. Lots of questions to answer, probably too many in today's episode. So we're going to hit on a fun topic that's nostalgic and silly at the same time. 90s cars we would love to see revived today. And Alex, you had a great one. I would like to see the Prowler come back. I think that could be a fun, nostalgic thing. It would be easier, I think, to develop this time around. When the Prowler was first concocted, they just had parts from the random parts bin, and they thought, well, you know, the, the Jeep's engines and transmissions, they're too big to put in the Prowler, so let's just grab random things from the front-wheel drive parts bin and jam them in there. But now you could use a ZF8 speed automatic or a manual transmission and you could get an alpha engine because everybody's all together in the Stellantis thing. So uh, you got lots more parts to pull from. I feel that if you're going to do this, if you're going to make a Prowler, first of all, I'm fine with the auto box. Most most hot rods have auto boxes, but it's got to be one of the new turbo sixes because the original vehicle was famously gutless and Alpha mm -hmm. engine might be fun, but I'm not sure it's in. I'm not sure it's consistent with the character of the vehicle. If this were like a Caterham or like it's a, turbocharged, it's loud, it's obnoxious. What's not to love about that, I mean, that quadrifolio? You can make it as obnoxious as you want with the straight six, but I feel like it's got to have guts down low. It's not like a peaky, high-revving, Ferrari-derived engine. I, I want something that mm -hmm. feels like a big block off the line. And I think like the five, the 510 horsepower six out of the Grand Wagoneer, that's mm -hmm. what I want, the Neo Prowler. I think that might be too heavy. I think I want. Uh, I think I do want a, a loud, obnoxious, you know, sparking, burping, fire-throwing V6 turbo. Okay, well, it becomes something very different at that point again. I think that's more like a Caterham, but I, sure, why, sure. why not? This is this is our individual dreams, so I can't mm -hmm, tell you mm -hmm. what your dream is going to be like. All I can tell you is that on my list of, uh, I actually would love to see Mitsubishi show it still has a pulse because since the Nissan Renault Alliance, it, it feels like they're just hanging on by a thread in the United States. And Mitsubishi has actually felt that way for about a decade. But how about bringing back something like the 3000 GT from the 90s? It was a technology leader. It had a multi-setting exhaust, active aerodynamics, <laughs> four-wheel steering, all-wheel drive. I mean, it was the full package. And it was really exciting, even if it was maybe the fourth or fifth best Japanese sports car of the 1990s. 
but it was just so exciting because it was packed with stuff you didn't expect to see in something under a hundred grand. I would love to see that come back even as a crossover. If it were still performance oriented, a technology leader, and it, it would be in one part like a successor to the 3000 GT. And like one part of it would be like Mitsubishi saying there's still like a pulse despite the long since departed loss yeah. of the Lancer Evo. I would love to see something like this that's distantly rally inspired, but above all, a performance and technology flagship to show Mitsubishi still has some life to it. I I don't think that would be a bad idea. I mean, they now have Nissan parts to pull from, so it could be a Nissan Z, I suppose. Or a GTR. Could be. The GTR <laughs> is probably never going to come back. No. The funny thing was the GTR was almost like the 3000 GT for a new generation. Yes. All the same stuff. All-wheel mm -hmm. drive, loaded with technology, twin turbo. I'm not a GTR fan somehow. I, the turbo lag is bad. <laughs> oh, no. Compared to something like any Corvette Z06, forget the GTR. But you could forgive it as a Mitsubishi. You could forgive it as a Mitsubishi. <laughs> That's my point there. Hey, hybridize it. Make You know, there's your turbo lag cure right there. Mm -hmm. You know, add some hybrid tech. Uh, I would love to see that. I would also love to see something like a two-door, full-size, body-on-frame GM truck. Because I love the two-door Tahoes of the 90s. And apparently, <laughs> so does the aftermarket. Because those things go for big money on bring a trailer. I would love to see like a current generation uh, Suburban or Tahoe offered with, and it wouldn't be a Suburban, it would be a Tahoe, offered with a two-door option. And I would love to see that two-door option made available, even on a limited basis. It would be so cool. Wow. You and five people would buy it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think that would be that would be a certifiable, like, 21st century cowboy Cadillac. I think that would sell well in places where you have relatives. Two-door things sell so impossibly badly. Uh, I am shocked, really, that, that GM and Ford sell so few two-door trucks. Uh, they won't really talk about the sales split, but they will say that, you know, it was a stretch internally to get them approved. And Ram just didn't even bother making a new truck with two doors. They're still selling the old two-door truck. But they've actually removed some of the configurations because people weren't interested in the shorties. They didn't want the two-door short bed format. So it's a that's a tough sell. Two doors, anything, it's a tough sell. But I think it could be done because in a world where you can now buy a decapitated Challenger and Ford made a short series <laughs> for two years of extended wheelbase suicide door Lincolns. I think if you bring in a coach builder, you start with a four door vehicle, you send it to the coach builder and you bring it to market as an enthusiast vehicle on a limited edition basis. I think it could work. I don't see it as a mass market prospect. I don't see it as something that would be a big money maker, but I think it would get people in the showrooms and it would generate a lot of press. And if a third party is doing all the work, I don't think it's a huge outlay. Like with the Lincoln, Ford did all the engineering, but they let Cabot Coach actually do the chopping. Mm. Um, and it was a success. It actually, you, you would say that the market for a super premium Lincoln Continental was probably zero, but they sold them out both years. So I'm not bailing on the idea of a two-door full-size SUV. I'm also not counting on it. <laughs> what I think would sell better and attract more people to the dealer would be the opposite direction a six-door F-350 or F-450. With six-wheel drive? No, just a six-door. Six doors, oh. three rows, a three-row, three-quarter ton and one-ton truck. That would probably sell better than a, than a two-door Suburban. 
I think it would sell well if it had six wheel drive. If it were like an American version of the G63 <laughs> AMG 6x6, oh my God, the wait list for that thing and the markups, the pre-owned like speculators and flippers would go nuts. That should absolutely happen. I'm willing to sacrifice my dream to see that happen. GM, if you were considering a two door, please do the six by six thing. That's add an, you, all you need to do is add an extra door, have a four foot bed in the back so you could still do a fifth wheel. And you could have the family mobile that can tow your RV. And the engine from the Escalade V, please make this happen. <laughs> probably not towing appropriate. We probably just need to stick with the heavy-duty engines, but you know. <laughs> yeah, well, the funny thing is this is actually a genre now. We've seen, look at all the 90s cars that are coming back. We've seen the Hummer revived as an EV. We've seen the Supra revived as a BMW. And even though it was more of an 80s icon, the Wagoneer was made in the early 90s, and it's back too. So don't mm -hmm. discount the possibility. Toyota's on one hell of a like specialty car kick. Yeah. And if they've got one more GR model in them, I would love to see an MR2. I would love to see I think it come the, back. Oh, yeah. they've said no more GRs. Yeah, no I more GR that. cars. Well, that you was know, like, some other kind of GR. Yeah, an engineer said that. So I'm hoping he's not the last word. Uh, I would also say that even though we've seen nameplates resurrected, we don't see the same formula for them that we saw in the 90s, generally. We do see different market realities. Wagoneer was considerably smaller back then. Um, everything and was smaller back everything then. was smaller. Uh, well, I mean, except for excursion. <laughs> uh, I am surprised that we don't have performance trucks in the US in that same way that we did in the 90s. There's no SRT 10 corollary and there's no lightning corollary for the gasoline side of things. They resurrected the name, but again, not the same sort of thing. And uh, when I asked Ram about this, they were just super offended. You know, why would we make a street performance truck? Nobody bought the SRT 10. It's like, well, yeah, this is a different, different decade and you're selling all these supercharged Ram TRXs why not just have one that's lowered with, you know, a removable wing on the back? Apparently part of the problem, the original SRT 10 didn't sell well was the wing didn't come off and it was kind of in the way of anything pickup related. Lincoln Blackwood. <clears throat> I think it's time for the Lincoln to come back. Yeah. And the Cadillac again, because we're selling six figure pickup trucks. Why not have a Lincoln logo on it? They're sort of coming back. Like the new Silverado EV is basically an avalanche with electric motors. Yes, I don't know if that will sell well. I'm I'm intrigued to see what that does because it's not a real truck. It's not a body on frame. It's a unibody. But uh, I, I firmly think that if we just took a GMC Sierra, stuck a Cadillac logo on it, really revamped the interior so it really looked like a Cadillac, if you could charge $150,000 for an Escalade, why can't you charge $150,000 for an Escalade truck? Well, I think what will happen with GM, they'll get back into the GMC Cyclone business. And here's how it's going to happen. Eventually, they're going to want something to compete with the Ford Maverick. And if you think of what a, I mean, who knows, maybe they'll call it the S10, maybe they'll come up with a new name. But if you think of something that's about Maverick sized, turbocharged and all wheel drive, that's just about what the Cyclone was back in the 90s. All that's missing is a GM truck of that size. And I cannot imagine after the success of the Maverick that we don't eventually see compact pickups from Ram and uh, GMC Chevy. I am intrigued because, of course, remember that Maverick is not as small as many people think. It was almost two feet short. The Cyclone's almost two feet shorter. That's true. But when you see a Maverick in person and you stand next to it, it's bigger than those older trucks, but it's also mm -hmm. smaller than it looks in pictures. You walk up next yeah. to it, 
feels like an escape pickup. Because it is. I mean, it is an escape pickup, but it's an escape pickup that was stretched to Dodge Durango size. So it is. I mean, if you think a Durango small, then sure. But if you're if you're at the camp that Durango is on the big side of midsize, then Maverick cannot be small. I would say it's going to be a long time till we find anything that's as small as the original Toyota pickup. That was really, really tiny in America. Even the T100 was pretty tiny. And those were several feet shorter than the current Maverick and narrower too. I think the problem is nobody wants those tiny trucks with the tiny compromised back seats that we had in the 1990s and 1980s. When you think of the hard body with those silly fold down seats, the back, those were just, those were awful. Horribly unsafe, I'm sure. Um, And now people expect compact crossover like legroom and dimensionally, there's just no way to make a vehicle with a hood and two rows with reasonable room and a cargo bed in the rear that's not over 200 inches long. Like this formula just does not work, which is why every truck out there is over 200 inches long. Yeah, well, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. But the reason for this is because every truck is now four doors. Yes. Even four doors. So yep. yeah, that, that's the real reason the Mavericks as big as it is. Mm-hmm. I, I predict we're going to continue to see passenger cabins grow and truck beds shrink. Mm-hmm. Until like every truck is like a more butch version of a Subaru Baja, like it's inevitable. <laughs> I mean, there's some truth to that. We are seeing theoretically a resurrection of some mid-sized trucks. The rumor mill is that Dodge will probably have some sort of mid-sized truck at some. Oh, sorry, Ram will have yeah. some sort of mid-sized truck at some point soon because I think there is a lot of uh, sadness that the Dakota was left to rot, and their focus on Ram 1500 kind of. They're smaller companies. They didn't have the resources to do them both. It was a logical decision at the time, but I think that they're sad that they let that sales stream go in what is turning out to be a decent, profitable segment right now, especially if you're Toyota and you're selling nearly 300,000 Tacomas. Yeah, I actually think the future of the truck is the mid-sized truck just because so many people now use them for commuting um, and so few people use them for work. I think the full-size truck mm-hmm. in the long run is going to be a work truck and the mid-size truck, which, by the way, is now the size of a 90s full-size truck. Yes. That's kind of the future of the truck market. I'm intrigued because the mid-size truck segment's not growing as much. When you when you look at, at the, the share of the pie, full-size trucks are growing ginormously, and the share of the mid-size truck the share of the trucks, truck market rather that's midsize has not grown appreciably. We're seeing huge growth in the small trucks now, the Maverick especially, of course. But uh, and 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 in individual models, we have the Tacoma now over two hundred thousand units. But the vast majority of Tacoma sales came from Ranger sales. So yep. when Ranger went off the market, that segment shrank like there was no tomorrow. And then gradually over the decade that followed, a lot of those Ranger shoppers moved over to the Tacoma without actually making the segment bigger. What I think is going to happen is we're going to see two factors that we haven't seen in a long time. One is going to be a sustained energy crisis because energy politics right now is just nuts. And we've got a war in Ukraine and a European ban on Russian oil coming in December. Uh, The other thing, too, is we haven't seen a business cycle recession in a really long Mm -hmm. time. We saw the like six month recession of 2020, which was due to COVID and completely inorganic. But I think we had a a long period of negative or flat economic growth and expensive gas of $4 or higher. You would see a huge swell in the market for the midsize truck. And this is just not a condition we've seen basically since the late 2000s. So to Mm. be continued. 
here's my here's my one pushback on that one. Okay. Mid-sized trucks get lower fuel economy than full-size trucks. So that's a problem. The Is most city this We're the most the most efficient Toyota Tacoma, the best-selling mid-sized truck in America. 21 miles per gallon combined is the best fuel economy it can get with 159 horsepower. Look at every mid, every full-size truck in America. There are models with better than 21 MPG, a lot of them with over 25 MPG. So it is interesting that we see such low fuel economy in the midsize segment because price targets are lower. So we see less of a push on fuel efficiency improvements, less money spent on aerodynamic improvements, on drivetrain improvements, et cetera. Even in recent vehicles like the new Nissan Frontier, fuel economy is not great in the yeah, Frontier. Yeah, the new Nissan Frontier is not new. And there's always this generational yeah. thing. Right now, right this now- drivetrain is entirely new though. New engine, new transmission. Well, the Tundra, though, is available exclusively as a hybrid right now. So that warps things a little bit. Um, no, Tundra's not. Tundra, you can get the regular V6, regular oh, twin turbo. Yeah. Sequoia, Sequoia is hybrid only. But Tundra's hybrid, not fuel efficient at all. Uh, I think they really stepped on a landmine with their new hybrid system in their trucks. Fairly disappointing, to be honest. Sequoia is barely competitive with General Motors 5.3 liter V8 with the turbocharger, uh, smaller displacement turbocharger and the hybrid system. Not great on the fuel economy. And Tundra is about four miles per gallon below the hybrid F-150. What about the new Colorado? I mean, it's four cylinder only now at this point, right? We don't have any official fuel economy numbers just yet. So I would hope that thanks to its more curvaceous style, they seem to focus more on aerodynamics, has the 10 speed and it has the four cylinder turbo that maybe fuel economy will be better, but the 2.7 liter turbo in the Silverado is not as efficient as Ford's 2.7. So that is a little bit tricky there. And it's about the equal of GM's 5.3. So fuel economy was not the biggest target, I think, with that engine. I think they were targeting power and torque rather than efficiency chasing. It definitely seems that with the current generation of vehicles out, you've got a point right now. They're not exemplars of efficiency. Mm -hmm. That said, if that ever became a buying point and a selling point, I do think it would be easier to make a midsize with its weight mm -hmm. and frontal area more efficient than a full size. I'm not sure how one is. I don't think the full size is inherently more efficient. I just think they paid more attention to it. Yes, exactly. They pay more attention. We have more money spent on active grill shutters on on lower air dams on cylinder deactivation technologies newer transmissions all that kind of stuff a lot more research goes into those trucks but also aerodynamically the frontal area is a little bit smaller on the mid-sized trucks but it's not that much smaller oddly enough we're talking variation on a theme and are the vehicles are about the same length so you know a a, a Toyota tacoma is over 212 inches there are a decent number of half ton the shortest versions of half-ton trucks in America are actually shorter than the shortest version of the Tacoma in America because of that reality of the four doors and the bed and the everything there. So that's important to keep in mind. Um, but yeah, it is definitely a, a, how much money are they spending on this? And for the mid-sized trucks, not as much money is being spent on efficiency. But I also think that you're right, and that's why Maverick has just absolutely exploded, especially the hybrid model, because there's a huge demand for a truck-like thing that does get 40 MPG, Ford finally got it. And they I think they did it accidentally because they absolutely did not expect the hybrid model to account for 
as much demand as they're getting on that. They honestly assumed that it would be a sort of a loss leader, maybe a low volume thing that would help with their cafe numbers. But by and large, people really, really want that hybrid. And if they had the hybrid with all wheel drive, that would probably be the most popular drivetrain in the Maverick, I think, without a doubt. That's a good point. I think maybe it's not the midsize. Maybe that was a red herring. Maybe I was looking in the wrong place. Maybe the future of the pickup truck in the U.S., at least for people who don't need it to work, is going to be unibody, car-based, 200-inch long compact pickups with hybrid powertrains. Never say never, but these will be in the next five years. That's all I yeah. can say. Yeah, I'm... I'm not sure it's the future of the truck in America necessarily, but I see it as a huge growing share of the truck market that is still growing. So I don't see very many half-ton owners that currently own a half-ton truck running out to buy a Maverick instead. But I see a lot of people that have never owned a truck before buying a Maverick because now I can have a truck and I can get 40 MPG. Okay, Alex, that has been a chock-a-block episode. We covered a lot of ground. Where can folks find us online? All the usual places, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook. You can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms. And if you are listening to this on one of your favorite podcast platforms, be sure to check out the YouTube channel so you can see what we look like. See you everybody later.